We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. They rehomed the wrong commander. Yeah, Joe Biden can't even handle handling a dog. Big story today is that he had to give his German Shepherd commander to a relative because commander liked to bite people. And Joe and Dr. Jill don't know how to control a dog. You would think they would by now at their age. Or they don't know how to keep strange humans away from their dog when strange humans should be kept away from their dog. See, when your dog bites someone once, once, that's a problem. Dogs aren't supposed to bite, especially big ones. But now, according to new information that's uh, come out through the Freedom of Information Act, there were 24 times when Commander bit someone. Most of the time it was a Secret Service agent. And one agent described being attacked somewhere near the West Wing. He said, Commander came in and bit him on the arm and caused a major wound, a deep wound. And he said, Commander then stood up. And he said he was as tall as him before the big guy came in behind him and uh, called Commander off. Another incident, and this one's on video, uh, Commander comes running at a high rate of speed toward an agent. He jumps toward him and then knocks him down. Now, I don't know, after, say... I don't know, seven, the 17th time? How about a leash? You know, a leash. We're talking about a big dog and obviously a, a mean German shepherd here who was uh, allowed to roam around the White House grounds without a leash. Seems like a place where there's going to be a lot of people around that the dog's not going to know and that might cause him to, you know, feel like he needs to protect his stupid master and then bite somebody. And before Commander, by the way, there was Major, a German shepherd who was rehomed after terrorizing people at the White House for months. And Joe actually accused a secret agent of lying when he said Major had attacked him. Somebody send the Humane Society out there to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and, I don't know, let's get Joe rehomed. And let's not wait until November. How about that? When we come back, Tim Murtaugh, former communications director for the Trump 2020 campaign, who, by the way, was a guest here every Thursday during the campaign. He's uh, written a book, and it's about, among other things, how he went from waking up drunk in a jail cell to riding on Air Force One in four years. And in our second half hour, union leaders have been announcing their support for Joe Biden, but the, apparently uh, they haven't spoken to the rank and file about it. Apparently, those uh, guys love Trump. Stick around. Four years ago, uh, Tim Murtaugh was a regular guest here every Thursday. He was communications director for the Trump campaign. And uh, I just found out today, though, that he's written a book. So I had to get him to come back on to talk about it. The book is Swing Hard in Case You Hit It, My Escape from Addiction and Shot at Redemption on the Trump Campaign. Tim, thanks for coming on again. How are you? Oh, John, thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. How about your own self? Good, good. good. So, 
I should say before we start here, I I met uh, Tim for the first time when he was about six years old. I was I <laughs> yeah. was doing play by play for the Charleston Charlies in Charleston, West Virginia. That's a baseball team. His dad, Tim, uh, who was the manager, and uh, and Timmy was as I knew him then when he was a little kid. Tim lived uh, who who we have here now lived in the same apartment complex. So. Um, I, I just saw. I wanted to point that out because uh, Tim is also the grandson of former Pirates manager Danny Murtaugh. So he comes from a baseball family. So, as I said, uh, Tim, Tim, Danny Murtaugh is your grandfather. Your dad played and managed in the minor leagues. I'm guessing that uh, part of that title comes from uh, one of them. Swing hard in case you hit it. It does, in fact. It's a good guess. My dad, when I was I was playing ball, and you can see that the, the baseball talent kind of get wa- gets watered down in my family by generation. <laughs> you, know, you mean you didn't play in the grandpa, big leagues? I did not, oh, in fact. Okay. Uh, <laughs> grandpa played nine years at second base in the major leagues and then was a manager for yep. the Pirates for all or part of 15 different seasons, and Pirates fans will remember that uh, right. his teams won the World Series twice. Right. And then my dad played in college, was an All-American catcher in college, and got drafted by the Pirates and made it all the way up to AAA. And in AAA, he got stymied. He was bit the way he tells the story anyway, is that he got stuck behind a young fellow named Manny Sanguian and couldn't... Any and couldn't he wasn't, so he couldn't get any playing time. Yeah. And I played in high school and wasn't quite good enough to play in Division One college. So my kids will have no chance. But um, <laughs> when when I would leave the house every day to go to baseball practice, uh, my dad would say, he was joking, he would say, hey, swing hard in case you hit it. And uh, I, always, I always took that and I, I, I sort of applied that to a lot of different things in life. And I think if you think about it, that's a pretty good philosophy for life in general, because if you're going to be engaged in any kind of activity, mm-hmm. you might as well put a good effort into it in case you succeed, right? Because if you succeed and you didn't try really hard, then maybe your success won't be as great as it could have been. And so swing hard in case you hit it is, is the title and the subtitle that talks about uh, escaping from addiction and my shot of redemption. So it's, it's half about my battle to quit drinking and escape alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And it's half uh, political stories, most of them being on the Trump 2020 campaign, where, as you said, I was communications director. Yeah, now I can hear your dad saying that. I work closely with your dad as a, as a play-by-play guy. You have to spend a lot of time talking to the manager. And he had a great sense of humor and I, kind of ironic, sarcastic sense of humor. And I, I, I can, I, I, it's almost like I, I can almost hear him saying that to the players on the team. You know, like, right. it, it ain't that tough. Just swing hard in case you hit it. So right. yeah, the, the summary of the book says, from waking up in jail to flying on Air Force One less than four years later, this is the story of Tim Murtaugh's journey from desperate alcoholism to the top of the political world on the 2020 Trump campaign. So why did you wake up in jail? Uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't just that one time, but yeah. that was I woke up in jail on the on the the day that I had taken what uh, to this to this day is still my last drink, uh, May sixteenth, twenty fifteen. So mm-hmm. coming up on nine years ago, and I was already on I was on probation for my second of two DUIs, and I went out and I got uh, drunk again, and I got uh, arrested again for drunken public, not a DUI, but. Because I was on probation for my second DUI, if I got a, if I got convicted of any alcohol-related offenses, I would have to go back and serve the remaining suspended jail time that I had. And I had served 10 days in jail for that second DUI, but I had 80 days no. of suspend, 
suspended time hanging over my head. And if I ever got in trouble, then, then I would have to do, that's basically three months in jail. And so I woke up in jail. I realized the predicament that I was in. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I, boy, have I had done it now. I mean, if I had had to go and serve those 80 days, it would have been the end of everything. It would have been the end of my professional life, for sure. My personal life would have suffered immeasurably. My, my, my friends and family were about through with me. My mm. brand new wife was fed up with me already. And I would have lost basically everything. And I managed to get help. I went into some programs and did a lot of stuff before I went and met with the prosecutor. And, and they worked out a way that where they would not bring, they would not try the case and that I had to stay on a straight and narrow. And if I ever did step out of line one more time ever again, then all hell would break loose. And I took that opportunity and uh, I made the best of it. Four years later, I was flying on Air Force One. So, I mean, it is really a pretty remarkable. There's a lot of stuff that happened in between, sure. and a lot of that is in the book, of course, but for the purposes of this show, I mean, yeah. it's, uh, I couldn't have imagined. When I woke up that day in jail, I did, it could not possibly, if somebody had said to me, four years from now, you're going to be flying on the President's Air Force plane, um, I wouldn't have believed it. It's a great story, um, and it's interesting that it took the third trip to, to I mean, you actually spent... 10 days in, behind bars in a jail cell. That, well, on that occasion, I did. Yeah, for my second DUI, I did 10 days. For the first DUI, I did five days. Wow. And, uh, you know, I got arrested here and there on drunk in public and public intoxication, whatever the charge happened to be, here and there, you know, hand, let's say another half a dozen times over the course of my life, in addition to the DUIs. I mean, I was I was a really, really, really problem alcoholic. It was it was very bad, and I ran afoul of the law on a number of occasions, um, as I as I just described. And so, you know, I, I for the longest time I just didn't see any way out. And I went to rehab uh, nearly a half a dozen times. And the reason why I wrote this book, really, two reasons. The main reason is when I was in rehab, I would go to the gift shop all the time in the bookstore, and I would just devour all of the titles that were people telling their own personal stories. All the clinical stuff and the medical journals and all that, that's, you know, that's information that's good, but I wanted to hear how people, how they did it, how did they beat it. And so I wanted to write a book like that. And so this is not a how-to book, it's just how I did it. You know, no one, no one can ever approach it the same way as another person. And the other reason why I wanted to write the book is because when I started on the Trump campaign in 2019, as a bunch of these Democrat opposition researchers had gathered up my police record file and were shopping did, it yeah. around to reporters trying to get them to write bad stories about me in order to hurt President Trump. Mm -hmm. And so now that I've written a book about my own problems, they can't ever do that to me again. Yeah. And, and well, how much of that did they did got out there? Did they did they? attempt to get those stories out there and there just wasn't enough interest to make it matter or, or did they not report that stuff? Uh, well, I cover all that in the book too. They did it. Ultimately they did not write the stories and I was able to prevent the stories from being written. Uh, one, I, I argued that it, it wasn't relevant, that these things were years and years in my past that I was not the candidate. I'm just a, I was just a staffer on the campaign communications director and that if, if the standard is, have you ever been arrested before for alcohol-related things, then you better be ready to write a whole bunch of stories like this because, you know, Washington is full of people with alcohol problems. Right. And I don't know why you would, why would you single me out. It's not like I got arrested last night. These were years ago, you know. Yeah. And if I get arrested during the campaign, you know, maybe you'd have a point. But these were years before I ever worked for Donald Trump. And so and the fact is that he knew about it. I told him about it. I told Brad Parscale, the campaign manager at the time. And I said, look, if anybody's 
spends 10 minutes looking into my background, this is what they're going to find. And they said, we love a good redemption story. President's, President Trump you know, blames alcohol for the death of his brother. Mm-hmm. And, so and he doesn't drink, drink, does he? He doesn't drink at all. Right. You know, never has. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, he liked the, the, the comeback story. And so, you know, once the press found out, well, okay, well, first of all, it's not, he's not going to get fired if we write this story. Uh, and we had, a, I think, pretty good argument that it wasn't relevant because this is all, you know, at that, that time, it was like five years in the past. Yeah. Well, before the campaign ever started, before Trump ever became president, as a matter of fact. So I don't see why it was relevant. And they agreed and we managed to kill the story. But they kept coming back and that kept coming up. It, it's like, you know, I got approached about it by reporters maybe 10 times. What for? They wanted you to. Uh, they wanted you to comment on it, or, or. Well, they're like, hey, you know, we've been fed this information, and before we write the story, we want to know uh, exactly what it is that uh, you have to say about this. And Politico, Politico came very close to writing the story. They told me that that the story had already been written, and in fact, what happened was Brad Parscale, the campaign manager, he called Politico and got the uh, editor in chief on the phone and said, if you write a story like this about our communications director when it has no purpose being written, there's no relevance to the campaign. If you write this story, Politico can forget about having access to anyone from this campaign for the duration of this campaign. So you make your choice. Yeah. So he threatened, but the campaign manager, I was appreciative that he stood up for me. The campaign manager threatened The easy easy thing would have been to go get another communications director. Right. Yeah. A lot of, I guess a lot of campaigns would have done that. Yeah. But he picked up, he picked up the phone, called somebody and threatened their access and they don't, they don't want that. (laughs) So I I know that you were, um, I know a little bit about your career before you went to work for the Trump campaign. You were successful uh, before 2015, before you ended up in jail. You didn't go from, you, you had a career and you had a resume, didn't you? When you went to Apply yeah. for the job. Oh, the, yeah. The, yeah. I was barely hanging on because of how much drinking I was doing. But at the time, I was working in 2015 when this all happened, when I woke up in jail in May of 2015, I was working for Congressman Lou Barletta out of uh, uh, Hazleton, PA. First guest so, on the uh, show when it went on the air. Yeah. Oh, the very first guest? Yep. Is that yep. right? Yeah. Huh. Uh, he um, so you so you know he's he's run for Senate and also mm-hmm. governor in the you know Republican primaries, right. and it was the Republican nominee for the Senate. So he he should lose one of my great saviors in my life. I don't know why he never fired me because when I was working for him, I was I really at my worst for much of the time, and uh, he didn't he he you know he he his family like most families was was touched has been touched by substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And he saw something in me that I, you know, that I, he didn't need to be throwing me on the discard pile. And he stuck with me, stuck with me, encouraged me to go get help, encouraged me to go to rehab and all that. And I'm forever grateful to him. But yeah, I had, you know, I had been a TV reporter and then I had done a whole bunch of campaigns. I worked for a variety of uh, statewide candidates in different states for governor, for Senate. I worked at the RNC, I worked at the Republican Governors Association. I, I had a successful career in political communications before I worked on the Trump campaign. Yeah. So how did you get from uh, there to flying on Air Force One? What made you go apply for a job with the Trump campaign? Well, I had when I was at Lou Barletta's office and uh, at, by this point, by the time Trump got elected, I had I was early in sobriety. So when Trump was elected in November of 2016, uh, I'd already been sober for a year and a half or so, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess that's how the math works out. I'm doing this on the fly. And um, uh, a friend of mine from um, uh, way back when uh, popped into my head one day because the day before Trump's inauguration, so January 19th of 2017, 
the news broke that the former governor of Georgia, Sonny Perdue, was going to be his choice to run the USDA, the Department of Agriculture. And I didn't know Sonny Perdue, and I, I didn't know anything about agriculture, that's for sure. <laughs> but I knew a bunch of people who had worked for Sonny Perdue when he was governor of Georgia, and I texted one of them, a guy named Nick Ayers. And I said, I sure would love to work for Governor Perdue. And the next thing you know, I was communications director for the Secretary of Agriculture in the, in the Trump administration because of my previous relationships from other political endeavors. Yeah. And so I worked there for two years. And then a friend of mine who was working in the White House, and I had known this guy from, from other campaigns in the past, uh, he texted me one day and he said, hey, have you had a, ever had any thoughts on working for the president's reelection campaign? And that was in like January of 2019. And I said, yeah, I've thought about it. I'd love to talk about it. And so I went over and met with everybody. And then uh, in February of 2019, I became the communications director for the president's reelection campaign. Well, so I wish we had more time, but I want to get to some of this other stuff here. What, what was your opinion of the Washington media before you went to work for Trump as communications director? And what was it after or what is it now? You know, as a whole, I think my opinion of them uh, was confirmed that I think that they are, that they, they choose sides, and it's obvious what side they have chosen. Right. And they protect one side and they attack the other side. That was my perception of them as a whole beforehand. And when I went to be, when I became the communications director, of course, that was confirmed. Now, that's not to say that there are not good people in the press corps, you know, as individuals. And, and I have really good relationships with a lot of the people at a lot of the publications that I think that uh, your listeners probably don't like too much. The Washington Post, the New York Times, the Associated Press, places like that. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of those reporters and I have really good relationships with a lot of them. Um, they're publications and they, I don't love everything that they write. Uh, but I do get along well and, and have good relationships with a lot of them. And you need to do that because I think if you're going to, if you're going to work as a Republican communicator in politics, yes, you know that these people are out to get you. That's no secret. They are, in fact, out to get the Republicans. But you need to be able to work with them so that you can influence their stories at least even a little bit to try to make them less bad, you know. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's, it's a tall hill to climb, but... Somebody's got to do it, right? Right. Do you discuss uh, January 6th in the book? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I do. Yeah, I talk about it a lot. I, was, I didn't even know what was going on. I had, I had done a TV hit. I was still on the campaign payroll because that was the campaign that would never end. Right. And it was in January of 2021, and I had gone. I had been into the campaign office to do a TV hit that morning and went home. I did go to the January 6th rally or anything. That was not a campaign event. That was planned separate and independent of the campaign. And I went home, and I was actually laying on the couch reading a Jack Reacher book. <laughs> and my wife my wife texted me from somewhere else in the house and said, hey, do you have the TV on? So I flipped the TV on, and that's when I saw what was happening at the Capitol. And that's, the, that's how I learned about it. So I talk about my reaction to that. I mean, I thought it was, I really thought it was disgusting. I thought a lot of those people were doing the conservative movement and MAGA. I thought that people were, I thought that a lot of them were doing all, all of that, a, a great disservice. And uh, I was horrified by what I could see on TV. Um, but I think that they are the ones who were responsible for what they did. The rush to hold Donald Trump personally responsible for the actions of other independent-minded people is ridiculous. If you broke the law, you should be held accountable. I don't think you should find someone else to blame for the fact that some people broke the law. Um, and then I talk about my experience in front of the January 6th committee staff. and That was a lot of fun as well. Right. 
Well, um, I got about a minute left. On election night, did you think Trump had won? Well, I mean, we knew it wasn't over early in the night. And when I say early, like around 10 o'clock or so or 11 o'clock, maybe even I don't remember exactly the times that these the state calls happened. But early on, we felt really good. We felt really good. And the political guys were telling me in various states that, you know, the turnout was where they had hoped it would be in certain counties, and they were feeling pretty good about it. Um, And then, you know, North Carolina, Georgia kept moving, the numbers kept moving, Arizona never looked really good. Um, And so, you know, when Fox made the call, called Arizona, it was it went, it was a jolt to everybody. I think going into Election Day and for a substantial part of Election Night, um, yeah, we thought we had won. Well, uh, there's a lot more I could talk to you about, uh, Tim, but um, I'm glad you were able to come on now. Maybe we'll have, on, have you on again and talk about this some more. The, uh, the book is Swing Hard In Case You Hit It, My Escape From Addiction and Shot at Redemption on the Trump Campaign. Got to be a lot of good stuff in that book, uh, Tim. Congratulations and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. It's available on Amazon for pre-order now. You can just search for my name, Tim Murtaugh, and it comes out on April 2nd. Very good. Thank you. I was one of the first to plug it. Happy to do it. Talk again. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back. Maybe you've noticed that Joe Biden has been picking up some uh, union endorsements lately. At least that's what you're supposed to believe, I guess. Uh, Mark Mix is the president of the National Right to Work Committee. And he joins us now with my, which, uh, with something that might be the other side of the story. Uh, thanks for coming on, Mark. I appreciate it. John, it's good to be on with you. Thanks for the opportunity. And you're right. I mean, the United Auto Workers Union delivered a coveted endorsement of Joe Biden about two weeks ago. Uh, this this endorsement was decided by 14 members of the executive committee of the UAW. <clears throat> but it, what the interesting twist was that when Sean Fain, the new president of the United Auto Workers Union, was on TV shortly after the endorsement, he said, and I quote, let me be clear, a great majority of our members are not going to be voting for Joe Biden. They're going to be voting their paycheck. So from that quote, one wonders uh, whether he made a Freudian slip and said something out loud that he wasn't supposed to or just made a mistake. The bottom line is this. It, it indicates a problem where there is a, a growing disconnect between union officials and rank-and-file workers. And I think this is a great another example of that. Um, and certainly we have other examples that will probably be in the news sooner rather than later when it comes to these endorsements. Yeah, see, I, I'm, I guess I'm crazy, but I used to think that the uh, when a union boss announced his endorsement of a candidate, you make the assumption that the union boss at least has, if he doesn't have his finger on the pulse of the uh, of the workers, somebody does, and they they before they make an endorsement or announce one, they actually have some reason to believe that the union agrees with what or with whom they're about to endorse. But that's not the case, apparently. Yeah, one would hope, John, that that would be the case. But I don't think that is. You know, while union officials call themselves the most democratic institutions uh, in America, what we do know about the UAW is that it wasn't until just about two years ago when they when they had a major federal investigation of corruption in the high ranks of the union going up to the president where two of their past presidents went to jail for felony uh, uh, extortion and racketeering. 
Um, it wasn't until then that they were under federal oversight, they still are for another four years, that they actually had elections by members of the leadership of the union. And still, to when it comes to these endorsement processes, as I understand it, as the Washington Post reported it, the 14 members of the UAW Executive Committee made this decision. And like you, John, I would assume that they talked to some members, but when you have the president coming out and saying, let me be clear, a great majority of our members will not be voting for Joe Biden, the candidate we just endorsed, uh, one has to wonder. Well, how, um, how common do you think that is? I think it's very common. I mean, when you look at, at, at the leadership of the unions and where they stand politically and ideologically, I think there's a great disconnect between the workers. And that's why the Teamsters Union right now is withholding their endorsement, and they're kind of playing footsies with Donald Trump because I think Sean O'Brien, the new president of the Teamster Union, understands that a large number of his rank-and-file, quote-unquote, members will be supporting Donald Trump when it comes to this next election. And Joe Biden um, really hasn't helped them as much. I mean, if you look at the stories around the Teamsters, other than their pensions being bailed out by taxpayer money, uh, the fact that, you know, 22,000 yellow freight truck drivers who were Teamster members were basically thrown under the bus by Sean O'Brien, the Teamster president, one wonders. Um, and I think in my experience in working with unions, I grew up a union in a union household myself, International Association Machinist Stepfather, for 32 years. And I can tell you, he didn't support the candidate that his union endorsed year after year. I'm sure of that. Well, and aren't their dues often taken and used to contribute to these candidates that they, whom they do not endorse? They absolutely are, John. And that's one of the cases that uh, we litigated back in 1988, believe it or not. We won a U.S. Supreme Court case, our Legal Defense Foundation, uh, called Beck versus Communication Workers of America. And it basically said that while you were a member of the union, your money would be used for political causes and other ideological causes because you were, quote, voluntarily a member of the union. Well, interestingly enough, uh, back to 1963 in a case called General Motors, the Supreme Court ruled that you didn't have to be a formal member of the union, meaning a formal membership member of a union, but you could still be compelli- compelled to pay up to 100% of dues or fees. In our case in 1988, we said, look, you can't continue to force these people to pay for political or ideological causes that have nothing to do with the workplace and the terms and conditions of their employment. And the Supreme Court agreed with us in that case. But the problem was, John, was that in order to exercise those rights and withhold your political money, you had to give up your workplace rights because once you became a non-member, still required to pay dues or fees to keep your job, you couldn't vote in the, on the union contract. You couldn't vote in union elections. You couldn't participate in negotiations of the contract and the conditions of your employment. So in order to protect your political rights, you had to give up your workplace rights. In order to protect your workplace rights, you had to give up your political rights. So today, if you're a member of a union, even though notwithstanding the fact that you would oppose what the union's doing with your money, uh, pretty much that money goes in to support candidates you may disagree with or causes you may disagree with, surely. What's the um, the numbers for union membership in the, in the country right now? Where, yeah, John, how, what, what's the, the numbers for 2023? Yeah, the numbers just came out in 2023, and literally after all of the kind of media attention about this dramatic uh, push in union organizing, the union density in the private sector actually went down. They represent about 6% of the private sector workforce today, about 10% of the entire workforce when you add in public sector workers. So their numbers their numbers have stayed relatively the same. The, U, the, U, the AFL-CIO, which is the umbrella of, I think, 56 independent unions now, 
has about 14 million members. And that's almost equally divided, John, between 7 million public sector government workers that are part of a union and about 7 million private sector workers that are part of a union. So 6%, that's, uh, that, that surprises me. Uh, what was, in, in the heyday of the unions, uh, what, were the, what were the numbers like? Well, in 1955, I think, was kind of the apex year for union density. That was about 35% of the private sector workforce at that time. Of course, at that point, public sector workers weren't unionized. It wasn't until 1959 when Wisconsin introduced the concept of government workers' unions in their state. And then John F. Kennedy signed an executive order in 1962, basically allowing unionization of federal employees is when that took off. But 55 was the apex at about 35% of the private sector. Was that a good thing? allowing government workers to unionize? Well, not according to Franklin Roosevelt. When he was asked about it in 1937, when they uh, when the Supreme Court upheld the federal imposition of unionism across the entire country on all 50 states, he said something like, you know, it's unconscionable that we would organize the public sector. It's just not the same as the private sector because the public sector provides necessary services and they're a monopoly. And the worst thing you want to do is give monopoly power to a private organization over what is perceived and probably as operationally a monopoly, i.e. government. So Franklin Roosevelt thought it was a bad idea. And I think most taxpayers probably think it's a bad idea now, too. Yeah. We're talking to Mark Mix. He's president of the National Right to Work Committee. Uh, Mark, can you just kind of explain what right-to-work laws are and why they're necessary? Yeah, John, it's really a simple concept. Back in the 1930s, during the Roosevelt administration, the federal government passed what is known as the National Labor Relations Act. There's a couple pieces to it, but today it's known as the National Labor Relations Act. That federal law imposed forced unionism on the entire country. It basically said... The unions were allowed to negotiate contracts that said you had to be a formal member of a union back then, and you had to pay dues to the union in order to get or keep a job in America. So that federal power spreads out across the country. From 1937, when the Supreme Court upheld this Wagner Act, this federal imposition of forced unionism, um, when President Roosevelt threatened to pack the court with six new justices, but that's a whole other story, John, um, In 1946, the Congress came back in, and in 1947, they passed a reform to the National Labor Relations Act called the Taft-Hartley Act, and they allowed states, if they could, by affirmative vote, to pass what are known as right-to-work laws to outlaw the closed shop forced unionism that was imposed by the federal government in 1935. And so since then, and since 1947, 26 states, well, actually 27 states have passed right-to-work laws saying that, look, you can join a union, you can associate with a union, you can give your entire paycheck to a union if you choose to do so, but you can't lose your job in a state that's passed a right-to-work law if you decide you don't want to be part of the union. And that's really how simple it is. Right-to-work laws just simply say, look, you have the choice and union officials cannot negotiate contracts that say you must be a member and you must pay dues. Yeah, I was a member of a union. Uh, I was a member of AFTRA uh, as a yep. as a radio TV performer, and I also mm-hmm. was a member of a union uh, when I worked for a local supermarket chain. Um, and in both cases, if I did not join the union, I I couldn't work there. That's right. And that's the power of organized labor. And believe it or not, John, there are private sector organizations been granted that power, that privilege 
by the federal government. And the only way you can roll it back is to use the, the, the little window of opportunity that states have to preempt federal law because, you know, the preemption doctrine, basically the, the federal law rules and the states can't tinker with it. But in this case, Congress realized after what would have been an exponential growth in unions and unfortunately an exponential growth in labor union disputes, strikes. From 1937 to the, to the passage of the, of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, there were literally millions and millions and millions of people on strike across the country. John L. Lewis was leveraging the coal mining union to uh, to put power on the government about, hey, you don't get your coal unless you concede to our demands. Walter Ruther with the United Auto Workers in 1937, you know, with a sit-down strike in Flint. I mean, literally, people got really tired of, of the shutdowns and the strikes that were fomented by this this power that union officials had. And so that's why 47, the Taft-Hartley Act passes. And to this day, unions still have that compulsory unions in power in Pennsylvania and 23 other states across America. So it still exists here in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. No, yeah, unfortunately. I, I benefited, I have to say, from membership in AFTRA. I saw also unbelievably stupid um, uh, results from the, the various unions that were um, involved in the shops I worked in, the TV stations that I worked for. But for me, for example, I, I got a great severance package that was a result of being in the in AFTRA. And um, I, I'm, I'm glad I had it, and I was almost to the point where it was worth being in the union. But what if – and Pennsylvania doesn't have the right to work law. So what, what about someone who doesn't want to be uh, a member of the union – in a shop where there is a union, uh, how do they? He can't benefit from the what the union has negotiated, correct? Or has no well, right no, you to claim. Can. Yeah, well, no, you know, and that's an interesting point, and that's one of the one of the provisions union officials talk about all the time is that somehow these people that don't want to support their political causes, their ideological causes, somehow benefit from the union. Well, let's first of all ex- establish that the unions are the exclusive bargaining agent in the workplace once the union is located there. That means that you, John, can't talk to your boss about a pay raise or talk about extra work or talk about you know any kind of conditions of employment that would be would be negotiated by the union. The union has to do that. So they become the spokesman for all employees in the workplace. And the notion that everything that gov- that unions do benefits every worker is really laid aside when you think about the seniority rules or the step pay rules or the you know the seniority rules that exist in a workplace that says, okay, if we got to lay off people, we're, we have to lay off, even though the, the worker that's been there five years may be a much better productive or much better and more productive worker than someone that's been there for 25, the guy with five years has got to go before the guy with 25. So if it does benefit you, and that's what unions, that should be their value proposition. They should be doing things like they did for you in negotiating these severance packages and saying, hey, look, we're more focused on the workplace and your future and your current, you know, where you are today than we are on who's elected in Harrisburg or who's elected in Washington, D.C. And unfortunately, because they have this compulsory power that comes with the ability to extract forced dues or fees from you and then to, to force you to associate with them and block you from having a conversation with your your employer, those are the types of powers that that sometimes, and I think in many instances, workers would say, don't benefit me. But the union is the sole exclusive voice in the workplace. So, you know, when they say uh, workers are, are getting all the benefits, I would say, well, well, first of all, what is a benefit? And secondly, there's no way that an individual employee can do anything on their own in a unionized environment. So it's really a, a stacked deck, if you will, when it comes to individual employee rights and freedoms. Would it be fair to say that 
unions are a good idea, but the concept has been abused? Uh, I say this, John. I say that there, you know, people always say, well, there was a place for unions. I agree with that. I believe that there is a place for unions, and I will. I, be, I believe there will be a place for unions in the workplace because any time that an employer abuses, you know, the employees or doesn't treat them well, there is a rationale for employees to join together to amplify their voice. The problem is that unions, since they got uh, they got a taste of government power with the passage of the Railway Labor Act back in 1926, they have gone to government for a, a dramatic expansion of their power across the American workplace. And I would say this. If they were more interested in the shop floor than they were on the on, in the steps of the capitals around the country, you know, people would join them voluntarily. But because they have this compulsory union power and because their power is a derivative of government action, they tend to not pay attention to workers. I grew up in a union household, as I mentioned, you know, 32-year member uh, of the machinist union. And I got to tell you that there were things the unions did that my stepfather disagreed with. He was a welder and he understood their power and he understood their role in the workplace. But you know, they had the sole voice. And so when they said, you got to go out on strike, they walked out. When they said they had to do this, they did that. And sometimes a lot of people disagree with them. So I say there was, there is, and there will be a place for unions, but there's no place for compulsion or force in that recipe. And and how uh, common is the issue of the force being a problem? Yeah. How big of a fight is it? Yeah, in every in almost every union contract in a non-right-to-work state like Pennsylvania, one of the first provisions of every contract, and if you pull out your after-contract after or your uh, United Food and Commercial Workers contract from your grocery store days, you'll find that the very first two clauses of the contract will be what's called union security. And that union security language goes something like this. That every employee that comes to be, comes to work for this company or this grocery store or this radio station is required within 30 days to join the union and have dues extracted from their paycheck as a condition of their employment. If after 30 days the worker does not agree to pay the union dues or quote join the member, join the, join the union, it usually has membership language too, which is illegal under the 1963 Supreme Court case that we talked about. That actual, you have to be a formal member. That's illegal. But they say you must be a member of the union and you must pay dues. And if you don't, you lose your job. I would say in 90% of the contracts in non-right-to-work states like Pennsylvania, that language will be the first or second section of every contract. In right-to-work states, that language, that union security language, and that's exactly what it is. It's security for the union, not for the worker. Um, that language can't exist in a contract in a right-to-work state. Well, um, I'm out of time, Mark, but I appreciate you uh, clearing that up. And everybody should pay close attention to what uh, are perceived to be or expected to be perceived as union endorsements of various candidates. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, John. Appreciate the opportunity. Okay, that's Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Committee. I'll be right back. So we talked about unions there in that last segment with uh, Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Committee. I mentioned that I have been a member of a union uh, twice in my life. When I was a kid, I worked for uh, Giant Eagle, and uh, I was a uh, just a stock boy, and I was in a union. And uh, I worked for two different TV stations, WTAE and KDKA. Um, so just a quick story about the, the stupidity of unions. This is the kind of stuff that used to drive me crazy and why the whole concept has been abused, I think. When I was at Channel 4... They had a stagehands uh, union, and the stagehands were involved in 
you know, moving things around on the stage. They had a bowling show there. There was stuff that had to be done that only the stagehands were allowed to do. But my favorite was, if you think about a TV news set, and there would be, it was, it was um, me sitting next to Don Cannon, and Joe DiNardo was sitting next to Don. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul Long was sitting next to Don, and then Joe DiNardo at the end, four of us. Well, if I would come in like a couple minutes before the newscast started, and one of the chair, like there's supposed to be four chairs ready to go so you could sit down uh, at the, on the TV, on the news set. If there was one chair missing, or not even missing, if there was a chair like that was like five feet, and I'm not exaggerating, five feet out of place, I couldn't move it. I wasn't allowed to move it. I had to call one of the stagehands. They they would page him, and I would stand there and wait until the stagehand came into the studio, picked up the chair, and moved it five feet. That's how unions can be abused. I'll talk to you tomorrow.